0: Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. So, Amos 5 del 21 al 24. Detesto y aborrezco sus fiestas religiosas. No me agradan sus cultos solemnes. Aunque me traigan holocaustos y ofrendas de cereal, no los aceptaré. Ni prestaré atención a los sacrificios de comunión de novillos cebados. Aleja de mí el bullicio de tus canciones. No quiero oír la música de tus cítaras, pero que fluya el derecho como las aguas y la justicia como arroyo inagotable. Mateo 5.6 Dichosos los que tienen hambre y sed de justicia, porque serán saciados. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, one of the most uh, well-known um, uh, speeches, one of the most eloquent speeches that's ever been given in the, the history of rhetoric, uh, was Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Everyone is aware of at least parts of that speech. Uh, And though uh, that speech is one of the most time-honored speeches, it's also one that's incredibly misunderstood, misquoted, and misapplied as well. Uh, In recent days, um, his thoughts on racial equality have actually been misused uh, to shut down a lot of conversation in recent days about ongoing racial injustice and. It's kind of sad that that has begun, that's become the norm that's a lament for another day but a famous statement made by King in that speech is actually our passage for today from Amos 5 King makes this statement in his speech he says no no we will not be satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream And there are many, and maybe even many Christians who have heard those words from King's speech, but did not know that those words are actually from the biblical prophet Amos. Those words of Amos were incredibly poignant words for King to use. And actually, those words give immense insights into the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' manifesto, as we said, when he says... Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's a righteousness that ought to come like a mighty stream. We should consider why King's usage of those words were so spot on. Now, if you've been with us, you know that we've been in the middle of a series called Thy Kingdom Come. It's been a very slow look at the teachings of Jesus about the kingdom of God found in the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular, we, over the last several weeks and for the next couple of weeks, we'll be looking at the Beatitudes found in Matthew 5 And this week. We come to the next of the Beatitudes, one that, like Martin Luther King's uh, speech, I have a dream, I think has too often, we bring down my level a little bit, um, that has too often been misunderstood and misquoted and misapplied, so... To understand how the words of Amos in Amos 5 foreshadowed the coming words of Jesus in Matthew 5, we need to be confronted by the context of Amos' prophecy and Jesus' sermon. And to do so, we need to look at three things, as we always do. Biblical righteousness, hungering and thirsting, and then what does it mean to be filled? Okay, so first... Let's take a look at what's happening when we, when we read about biblical righteousness. Uh, there's no real way to understand the gravity of Amos' words about justice and righteousness or Jesus' words about hungering and thirsting for righteousness without first wrestling with what righteousness is. So, our English translation of the word righteousness unfortunately tends to come with some assumptions and some theologizing about the word that too often misses the depths of what's being commanded by Jesus. So, let's consider that word for a moment. First, we need to know that the word that we have as uh, that's the, the Greek word that's been translated into the word righteousness actually has this very rich and deep and complex uh, definition. That again, we often miss. Throughout the New Testament, the Greek word for righteousness is often used in in three different ways. Let me give those to you quickly. First, there's the legal dimension of righteousness, there's a moral dimension of righteousness, and then there's a social dimension to righteousness. Um, So, legally, the word uh, often in the New Testament references one's standing or one's status before God as judge. So you have Romans 3, you have 2 Corinthians 5 that speak of a righteousness that exists outside of ourselves that is imputed to us or given to us, those who trust in Jesus. This is actually one of the central themes of the gospel, that Jesus doesn't just take our sin, but he also gives us a righteousness, and that righteousness is this legal standing Before God as judge. It's a righteousness that, in the words of Ephesians 5, allows us to stand before God without stain, wrinkle, blemish, holy and blameless. Thanks be to God. However, though this is a miraculous and marvelous truth about the gospel, this is not the only way that the Bible, and in particular the New Testament, speaks of righteousness. There's another way that it speaks of it, less about a legal standing and more in regards to morality we would be mistaken to assume that righteousness is only about our right relationship with God. It is not less than that, but it also includes our conduct. It includes our actions, our thoughts, our motives. It's the constant refrain of the book of Leviticus, and then is repeated again later in 1, Tim, or, uh, 1 Peter 1 and 2, or 1 Thessalonians 4, where God over and over again says, "'You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy.'" See, this command, this idea of righteousness takes on a moral element because we are called to be holy and pure. This is what it means to be righteous, to obey God's commands, to be in submission with our lives to the King, a pursuit of holiness and purity of life. This is also what righteousness means. However, once again, we would be mistaken to only see righteousness as a right relationship with God, or as personal piety or purity or holiness, because there's a third way to understand righteousness biblically, and that's socially. This is often missed in our English translations, but the word translated righteousness is the same root word that we get the word justice as well. Matthew 5, 6 could very easily be translated, and some translations translate it this way, that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. And justice has a social aspect to it. Uh, I've referenced him before, and I will likely do so uh, many times more over the course of the series because I so appreciated uh, his work on this passage. If you guys want to maybe put this this quote up, uh, theologian John Stott, when reflecting on this portion of the Beatitudes, he puts it this way. He says that biblical righteousness is more than a private and personal affair. It includes social righteousness as well. And social righteousness, as we learn from the law and the prophets, is concerned with seeking man's liberation from oppression Together with the promotion of civil rights, justice in the courts, integrity in business dealings, and honor in the home and family affairs, Christians are committed to hunger for righteousness in the whole human community as something pleasing to a righteous God. In other words, biblical righteousness that does not include liberation from oppression, the promotion of civil rights, justice in the courts, integrity in business dealings is not true righteousness. So at minimum, I hope we at least see, hope we at least hear that biblical righteousness, it's rich and deep and complex. Biblical righteousness is a right relationship with God. It's holiness and purity in our lives. And it's also social justice, social righteousness. Of course, though, if that's the case, the question that's left with us is what then does it mean to hunger and thirst for this? What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice? Let's consider that. Uh, so again, Amos 5 really gives us uh, a very robust picture of what this ought to look like. And what I want to do, I actually want to look at Amos 5, and I want to consider what we just read in Amos 5 from the negative, meaning I want to take a look at what it means to not hunger and thirst for for righteousness, so that we can have a better understanding of what it actually means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And to do that, I want to consider Stott's statement about learning from the laws and the prophets. And Amos is a great one to learn from. It's a remarkable case study for what hungering and thirsting is not. Let me give you the context. The context of Amos 5 is really simple. Israel, the people of God, had experienced a season of political stability and prosperity. But in uh, in this season, there was also great extravagance and corruption that had become very pervasive in the nation. The rich and the powerful were oppressing the poor. And so as a result, the prophets, he came to denounce their actions and warn them of a coming judgment because of their breaking of the covenant with God through their injustices. They were not in right relationship with God because they allowed these pervasive Injustices, And what's particularly striking is the statement that comes right before the very famous statement of justice rolling like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. God, through Amos, makes clear his disgust, not only just for their injustices, but also for their hypocrisy. Look at uh, verses 21 all the way through 24, but in particular, let me just read for you 21. He says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. And then he goes on to say, in away way, with your, no, the noise of your songs, I will not listen to your music, the music of your harps. What's going on there? Well, these are church-going folk that Amos is speaking to. Those allowing injustices are coming to the temple to worship, and they are celebrating their religious festivals, bringing their office, uh, offerings, and singing their songs. And God says, I despise your worship. While you are standing in wrong relationship with me, having broken the covenant in your impurity and your lack of holiness while you allow social injustice in your society. And as a result, God says, away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-ending stream. In other words, stop singing your songs. And instead, go pursue justice and righteousness. Now, much like the Greek word for righteousness has this deep, rich meaning, uh, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, the words justice and righteousness in our passage also have this great depth of meaning. We've talked about those at length, and I won't go into them fully. You can listen to previous sermons if you want to. In particular, uh, in our Ecclesiastes series, The Longing for Justice, we spent some time on this, or... You could sign up for our Intro to Redeemer East Harlem class, because we do go through some of this quite a bit, so sign up today. But if I could boil it all down, those two words, uh, the the Hebrew word uh, mishpat, which means justice, and zedekah, which means righteousness, boiling all those down, mishpat would be this idea of creating systems and structures that are fair and equitable. And then Zedekah, which means righteousness, is this idea of living justly. So Amos, in Amos 5, God is saying to his people, you have allowed unfair and inequitable systems and structures, you have not lived justly, and as a result, you are not righteous. This is what's being communicated through Amos 5. So if that's to put it negatively, about what's not, what, it, what it means to not hunger and thirst for righteousness. To put all of this positively, righteousness is a desire for mishpat. It's a desire for zedekah. It's a desire for justice and righteousness in its fullest. And without it, our worship and our offerings are a stench before God. Now, I want to take a moment, having said all of that, And I want to talk to two different groups of people that are likely present here who tend to exist on a spectrum but like push these extremes all the way out because I think that's helpful. Those two groups are really one, those who may find themselves to be more justice-minded. And then the other group that I want to talk to are those that might find themselves to be more what I'll call piety-minded. And I'll explain what I mean by these two things. But first... Group number one, those who tend to be more justice-minded, there is a group of people, for sure, who very much resonate with these ideas of justice. So you hear the words of Stott about liberation and equity in the courts and just business practices. All of that resonates with you and it absolutely should. You are a person who sees the injustices in the world and you refuse to allow those injustices to persist. I want you to hear me. That instinct is good and right and true. But what I find to happen sometimes is that with that desire, there sometimes can come the loss of the other aspects of righteousness. Meaning, many have, in their pursuit of justice, rejected the root of that justice, rejected the God of justice who calls them to also at the same time trust in Jesus. To pursue a life of holiness and purity as he commands. And while those pursuits of justice might benefit some, in the end, I see this all the time, those pursuits of justice become untethered to what is ultimately good and right and true. Because it becomes untethered from the God of justice. And when we allow it to become untethered, I want you to know it's not faithful. And it's not just because it's removed the God of justice. There's a whole branch of justed, justice minded people, even Christians, who end up being more influenced by the culture and the political climate of outrage than they are Jesus. And so my call would be root your desire for liberation and equity and just business practices in the God of justice, in all that he calls us to in his righteousness. But there's also a second group of people. Those I would call the more piety-minded. And here's what I mean by that. There are those who hear the words of Jesus about righteousness and you immediately think, ah, yes, Jesus is saying that I must trust in his righteousness for my salvation. And I ought to live a life of holiness and purity. A life of piety before the Lord. And for, for you as you hear this, you you think about the, the many ways that God calls you to live a life of purity. The ways that God calls you to trust in the work of Jesus alone for your salvation. And I just want you to hear, that is good, and that is right, and you should absolutely be pursuing such things for the glory of God. And so maybe you start to think about actions that speak to this personal piety. Things like Righteousness is attending church, and it's your Bible reading, and it's a purity of mind and body, and I want you to know, all of those things are good, right, and true. And yet, when you begin to hear the ideas of justice, the ideas that Stott articulates, you never actually consider that that's actually part of what it means to be just, what it means to be righteous. You don't think about it, or maybe even you're in opposition to the idea that injustice pervades our society, that there are still people in need of liberation from systems and structures that are unfairly treating people, that they are inequitable, or that our economic system and practices in business need to be challenged. And you don't ever think about that actually being part of what it means to follow Jesus. And frankly, this has always been the MO for evangelical Christians in the United States. Time and time again, this has been the way that evangelicals have veered. Branches of the church certainly struggle with the other problem. And oftentimes people treat them or call them progressives. So they would certainly lean more that way. But this issue, this piety mindedness, this is an issue often for the evangelical church because the evangelical church has failed miserably over and over again on this issue. I know that we reference this pretty regularly, but it's why we still give slave-holding Christians of the past a pass because we just assume, well, they got the gospel right, and they were pietists who lived lives of purity and commitment, not thinking, no, they were incredibly unfaithful, to this command of jesus because of what they perpetuated it's why mlk used the words of amos when he uh, in in uh, his famous speech it's also why he wrote like the famous letter letter from birmingham jail because it was christians who believed in having a right relationship with jesus who believed in living a life of purity and piety that did nothing during the lynchings of african americans during the segregation that was pervasive around the country, including in our own city, that continues even now to have consequences and effects. Christians have always been on the forefront of policies and culture that have been incredibly unjust. And it hasn't stopped either. It's still happening even now in an entire segment of the church an entire segment that is more concerned about denouncing those who take seriously the commands from Jesus concerning justice, they're more concerned about denouncing others than they are about actually trying to fix the injustices that exist. Which is why the debate is always around things like, let's spend all our time debating things like critical race theory or anti-racism work or the evils of the social justice movement. Instead of considering the injustice itself It's easier to spend our time on something else than to address it directly, the injustice itself, while never offering any kind of solution to the problems of injustice. And in the end, we just allow it to continue. We allow it to perpetuate and assume that our piety is in some way honoring God, finding his favor when all along we've rejected this crucial piece of what it means to be biblically righteous. And as a result, God through Amos, the words of God through Amos ring out, away with your noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll like a river. Righteousness like a never-ending stream. And like those on the opposite end of the spectrum that care little about right relationship with God, there are many who are more influenced by the culture and political climate of outrage than they are Jesus. Now, as we said over and over again throughout this series, these are the ways that we reject the king. We reject the king by not considering fully all that he commands us to. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice, for they will be filled. This is what we hear Jesus say to us all today. So my question to all of us would be, where is our failure to hunger and thirst? Are you passionate about justice but have no hunger for righteousness before God? No real hunger for holiness and purity in your life? Or are you all about the righteousness of Christ and right relationship with God and living a life of purity but you lack concern for or make excuses about? the demands of justice or maybe it's both maybe you hunger and thirst for none of this over the course of the years I know for a fact I've been guilty of both of these things And my encouragement would be to all of us where do we find ourselves failing but in the places of those failures I want us to know and I want us to hear that Jesus comes And he certainly confronts us by saying that only those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who hunger and thirst for a right relationship with him through faith, who hunger and thirst for purity and holiness, who hunger and thirst for social justice will be filled. And of course that leaves us, I hope if we're honest, with some failures to bring before him. But that also leaves us with a final question. What does it mean to be filled? What exactly, what is the hope that Jesus is providing us as we hunger and thirst? You know, some of us have never known anything about what it means to hunger and thirst, but I hope, I pray, that that hunger and thirst, if you haven't felt it before, even now, that the Spirit of God is beginning to work that in us, that hunger and that thirsting, so that we can be satisfied, so that we can be filled. Let's look at that finally. What does it mean to be filled? I want you to notice the, uh, the passiveness of that statement, that the filling is not being done by you, and it's not being done by anything that you do or do, don't do, but rather it says that they will be, those who hunger and thirst, they will be filled. What are we being filled with that brings this satisfaction from that hunger and that thirst? Well, in Luke 1, we have uh, the song of Jesus' mother, Mary maybe you know the song it's a song of exuberant joy and worship at the coming of the messiah and in the song she says this among many things she says my soul glorifies the lord and my spirit rejoices in god my savior for he has been mindful of the humble servant of his humble servant now of course this is about jesus and she goes on to say that he has filled the hungry with good things but has sent the rich away Empty. What's going on there? Let me just quickly say, this is the running attitude, running theme of the Beatitudes so far, that our posture before God is a reliance on His grace. That's the determining, determining factor in our posture before Him. It's one who understands that we're, you know, as we've said, poor in spirit, that we come to God with empty hands, that it's the king. those who uh, have empty hands, the kingdom is yours. We've talked about those who mourn, their sin are to be comforted. We've talked about how those who are meek and humble, they are the ones inheriting the earth. So there's, there's this general posture that we see over and over again throughout the Beatitudes and that Mary reflects on, that this, there's this humility that, that ought to be present for servants of God. And that, as a result, she talks about, that those who are hungry will be filled with good things. The rich will be turned away because they have all that they need. The hungry who come with nothing, they will be filled. But again, with what? What exactly is filling us? Well, do you remember that passage in John six where Jesus makes a striking statement about himself? He says this. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, of course, Jesus is not talking about a physical hunger necessarily, but he's talking about this longing that is within all of us. Mary speaks of the filling that comes through her God, our Savior. And Jesus here is saying that he is the one who fills. He is the one who satisfies. He is the one who takes that hunger and thirst and quenches it. It is the full knowledge of who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish in his life, in his death, in his resurrection that fills us as we trust in him. And consider those categories that I said earlier, the, you know, legally, morally, socially. Consider how the work of Jesus fills that hunger as we pursue him in these ways. You know, legally, righteousness is this possessing a right relationship with God which we have by faith in Jesus, who is our righteousness when we stand before the judge, which means as we hunger and thirst for that right relationship with God, and we put our faith in Jesus, it's Jesus who satisfies that hunger and brings rest to us, that we might know that we are in right relationship with God. We also have this moral righteousness that we spoke of. Morally, righteousness is pursuing a life of purity and holiness. And when we trust that Jesus, our Savior, has taken our failures to live a life of purity and holiness, he's taken those failures upon himself, has atoned for them on the cross, we can then trust that as he sends his Spirit, his Spirit will empower us to live a life of holiness and purity. And so as we hunger and thirst for that purity, we can believe that the Spirit of God is helping us live that life of purity and holiness but also that social aspect righteousness is pursuing justice in the world that prioritizes the weak and the vulnerable and the oppressed and the marginalized in this world which for those who trust in jesus is rooted in the fact that we are called as we've said over and over again in the series we are called to make the invisible kingdom of christ visible now until he returns and because he's resurrected we know that he will return. And so as we hunger and we thirst for righteousness, justice in this world, we can do so with great hope because we know that our King will return, bringing the fullness of justice one day. Jesus is, Jesus himself is the bread of life that quenches our hunger, quenches our thirst. And I'll just leave us with this. I brought up those two groups earlier. Those of you here that long for justice in this world, again, it is a good thing. Keep that fire. But also know at the same time that you will never see complete justice now, never. The brokenness of this world is such that there will always be new ways that we as humans are inequitable, unloving, uncompassionate, and unjust. And if all our hope is in our ability to change the world, we will burn out in our pursuits of justice. We will hunger and thirst endlessly. But if we look to Jesus, we see a Savior who honors and empowers us to reflect him in this world through our acts of mercy and justice. We see a Savior in Revelation 19 who will return, being called faithful and true. He will come to crush injustice. That. Passage means so much to me, it is half of my arm. My entire tattoo is Revelation 19. Constant reminder of a Savior that will come. But there are also those who rightly take seriously right relationship with God, personal holiness. Do not miss that part of what it means to be in right relationship with him. What it means to be a person of holiness is to take seriously that Christians ought to be on the forefront of standing against All injustice against the weak, the vulnerable, and the oppressed. The Lord is not satisfied with just our attendance at worship or our personal Bible reading or prayer time if at the same time we do nothing for those who are weak, vulnerable, and oppressed or spend all our time telling other people how they're doing justice wrong. Instead, let's pursue what it means to make the invisible kingdom of Christ visible now by looking together at Jesus, the bread of life, the one who fills us and empowers us to be truly, holy, completely righteous. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy toward us. Lord, we are a people who fail miserably daily at being righteous before you. We do not allow our relationship with you to be primary. We do not pursue holiness and purity. We do not care about the things that you care about like injustice in the world. Every day we fail miserably. And so God, I pray that though that ought to produce in us a hunger and a thirst for more, we also recognize that there is a satisfaction, a filling that comes as we trust in Jesus. For it's in Jesus we find all of our hope that we'll be in right relationship with you, that your spirit empowers us to live for you, and that you also are at work in displaying the beauty of your kingdom through our acts of justice. God, all of this comes as a result of trusting in our Savior. Help us do it. And make us a people, make us a church that declares the glory of your righteousness, the glory of the work of Jesus. We ask all this in his name. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.